Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In Season 2, I interviewed fascinating people with a connection to Africa and to me. It got me thinking because I've had the enormous privilege to meet the most extraordinary people along this journey of life. So in Series 3, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with a good story to tell. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my guest today has written several books, including The Rift, an honest, if not brutal, account on how Islam, dictators, and aid workers have managed to keep Africa and Africans down at heel. Falling Off the Edge, a book about the dark side of globalization, Lifeblood, the worldwide effort to eradicate malaria, and more recently, The Good Mothers, the gripping true story of how a group of brave women helped take down the powerful Calabrian Mafia criminal empire. Alex is a journalist and former Time magazine correspondent for Africa. He even spent a short stint in a Zimbabwean jail courtesy of Robert Mugabe. He's written for The New Yorker, Harper's, The Guardian, Time, Newsweek, The Sunday Times magazine, the list goes on. And he's with me today to chat about the extraordinary success of his book, The Good Mothers, which is about to be released as a feature film. So Alex Perry, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Pete. <laughs> what an intro. <laughs> Alex, you have a whole host of accolades to your name, which we simply can't go into right now. So I want to talk to you about The Good Mothers, arguably your most successful book so far. And if I may say so, your most gripping. It reads like a crime novel, a real page turner. You simply can't put it down. Can you tell us about the book and how you got involved? Uh, so, the, yeah, the book is uh, it's the story of three women uh, who were born into uh, uh, mafia families in the in the toe of Italy, uh, Calabria. Uh, there, the mafia is called the Andrangheta, and it's it's kind of the one you've never heard of. And the reason you've never heard of it is because it's, it's better at it than the other two, which is the Naples Mafia and the Sicilian Mafia, the Cosa Nostra. The Andrangheta is was really uh, totally secret even till about ten years ago. No one really had ever heard of it, but uh, it brings in $100 billion a year. It supplies or it, it brokers and is involved in 80% of the cocaine trade in Europe. Uh, it, uh, it has a weapons arm. It has a financial money laundering arm that is so enormous that it actually um, launders money for all other organized crime groups. And, and you know, in, in, in that sense, the, the Indrangheta is the most powerful mafia on earth. It's 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 in all our lives. We, we bank at its banks. We live in its buildings. We elect politicians it pays for. You know, it is um, a monster, really, is, is how it was described in Calabria. And it's only now that we're just beginning to understand it. And a large part of the reason we are beginning to understand it is because of these three women who stood up to their own families. What The, the reason it's remained a secret so long is essentially because it's in, almost entirely family-based and it's very difficult to break out of that familial bonds. Uh, these three women rebelled, gave evidence, gave prosecutors really their first insights into what this organization was. And, and the fourth character in the book is, is, a, is a female prosecutor who, who 
unlike her male colleagues, understood that the wives were important, that they'd been sort of overlooked until this point, but she understood that the, the, the men in the Andrangheta are appalling violent misogynists and um, you know, medieval, they'll, they'll kill their women for being unfaithful and not just kill. I mean, they, they, they make them drink acid and dissolve their bodies. It, you know, it's, it's at the level of violence is just extraordinary. She understood that these women were in the room when all the decisions were being taken. They, they knew the entire network and they had a very good reason to want to get out, which was that they were having miserable lives. But until this one prosecutor sort of made that mental leap, no one had, everyone had ignored the women as being unimportant. I mean, we all know that uh, in all mafia stories, you hear about the matriarchs being the true bedrock of any Italian family. Um, so this obviously was their Achilles heel. Yeah, I mean, it's, what's interesting is, is, is uh, and excruciating actually, is that you've got both those figures in this story. You have the, the daughters, they, they tend to be the younger generation. All these women are in their thirties and they, they are young mothers. They are rebelling and their central motivation is because they want a better life for their kids. In almost all their cases, in fact, I think all their cases, their own mothers who are in their 50s or 60s are paid up members of the mafia um, and are in at least one case, um, are instrumental in taking revenge on their own daughters. So their loyalty is to the, to the mafia, not to their daughter. So you have, both figures, you know, the, the younger generation out, acting out of love for their daughters, the older generation staying with the organization. I mean, it beggars, belief, it, it beggars belief that all this takes place in a very nondescript, sleepy Southern Italian village. I mean, if you were a tourist, you would find the whole place terribly boring. And the interesting thing is about that it's a part of Italy that's actually terribly poor. Yeah, well, there's a reason for that. It's because it's got a mafia. <laughs> and they don't um, pump the money back into the community, clearly. No, not at all. They launder it through London. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, that's one of the, um, the great lies of the, the mafias. I mean, there's, the reason why there are three mafias in Southern Italy is that they sort of position themselves as defending the South from a predatory North and that goes all the way back to Italian unification 150 years ago, which is essentially a Northern Italian project. And for Southerners, it's often seen as a moment of subjugation, but it's a lie. The, the mafia doesn't develop the South. It doesn't champion the South. It doesn't stand up for the South. It stands up for itself. It rips off the state and the European Union. And it, it uh, you know, it, it, it peddles the worst kind of, uh, contraband, you know, firearms and drugs. And for more than a century, its main business was extorting its own population, you know, protection rackets, uh, going down to the pizzeria and saying, right, you know, 300 euros or whatever. I mean, and, and so in the end, you know, and it, it feels kind of self-defeating, right? Because, you know, you have this enormous organization where people are killing themselves left, right and center and, 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 it's generating all this money, but they're living in poverty. Many of the mafiosi and, and, the, and the bosses are living 
in kind of almost like prison cell-like structures, generally these bunkers hidden behind the fireplace in some cottage in the middle of the countryside. They, they don't even see natural light, let alone get to enjoy their money. So, you know, the question is, what are they all doing it for? What's the reason? And it seems to, the best answer I could come up with is it seemed to be this very kind of local fame and power. You're the biggest family in the street, you know? And, and it's just, it's, it's now grown into this sort of billion dollar enterprise. But the reason it's still attached to Calabria is because what really matters to this family is, is what their neighbors think of them. And, and, and that, that's the, the source of, so much of what they do and that's also the source of so much of the bloodletting between clans in the Indrangheta. They're constantly at war because they're constantly repositioning themselves on this kind of ladder of, of, of power. So, so how difficult was it for this female lawyer, uh, prosecutor, to get the women to talk? Uh, I mean, really hard. Um, the, the, the first woman in the book, she was a, a reasonably extraordinary character and just self-possessed, walked into a cop station one day and said, basically, I want to defect, you know, and um, took her daughter with her. No one had ever done that before. And I don't think anyone's ever really done that again. But that served as an, as, as an example to the prosecutor, Alessandra Ciretti, and she... There was a particularly powerful family at the time, probably the most powerful family in the Indrangheta. They were rounded up and there were a number of women caught in the net. And she just began talking to this young woman um, who initially refused any contact. And it was sort of like the way she described it. You know, when you walk into the into the into the interview room and the, and, and the this woman, Josephina Pesce, is sitting there. She just tenses like an animal, you know, she's ready to attack. Um, but as I say, then, as it dawned on this woman who was 32 at the time, Giuseppina, that from now on, she's not gonna see her three children, that the state is gonna bring them up, or if, they, if, if they're not gonna be in state care, they're gonna be in the care of relatives who are fully paid up members of the mafia, who she doesn't particularly like and trust, and who she knows has killed people, she goes through a process of recalibration and eventually she reaches out and, and just sort of says, I want to meet. Doesn't say why. Um, and from that process, they had months and months of conversations, which was really all about establishing trust. And then Giuseppina begins to reveal more. And then Alessandra realizes that She's not just a wife, Giuseppina. She's an active member of the Andrangheta. She's been running protection rackets. She knows about um, corruption in, in infrastructure. She knows about the cocaine shipments through the main port, Joy Taro. She knows a lot. She, you know, she knows who's killed who. She knows where the bodies are buried. So she's suddenly an incredibly valuable uh, witness. But what, what I found really... I mean, the human heart of this story is Alessandra, as a prosecutor, an anti-mafia prosecutor, lives within fear of her life every day. She has four bodyguards and a bomb-proof car, and, and um, you know, she has a death sentence out on her. Suddenly, Giuseppina, having betrayed her family, is in the same position. And Alessandra, 
who has decided never to have children because of the vulnerable position that she's in, finds herself becoming a mother, essentially to Giuseppina, finds herself taking this young mafia woman who should be really her enemy into her care. And, and they still, I mean, they became very close. And even after all the cases that, that had been resolved that came out of Giuseppina's evidence, they still talk to each other almost on a daily basis. So they're all still alive. No, okay, so, so Alessandra is alive um, and uh, Giuseppina is alive in witness protection, hidden away. I tried to speak to her, it seemed to be impossible. Alessandra actually half the time doesn't even know where she is. But the two other women who feature in the book, they, they were killed. Um, both killed by, one killed by her husband and one killed by, well, we don't quite know, but this is, she died in the family home having drunk a litre of acid, which is almost impossible to do. I mean, it's a real emotional thriller, isn't it? It's hard to believe that this is real life and it's happening right now. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing is, is as you say, this is modern day Europe. This is 21st century Europe. And the, 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 the morality is medieval, that the, the sexism is sort of 12th century. Um, and it comes couched in this medieval law. The Andrangheta has this myth about three knights, uh, you know, way back in the mists of time who arrived in Italy from Spain and one went to Naples and founded the Camorra, one went to Sicily and founded the Cosa Nostra, and one went to Calabria and founded the Andrangheta. It's bullshit, obviously. <laughs> and yeah. yet it produces this almost kind of Monty Python-esque uh, ritual ceremony in Andrangheta when they induct a new member. All the men stand in a horseshoe shape. The inductee pricks his finger with a needle and bleeds onto a playing card of uh, St. Michael, the Archangel. I mean, it's nonsense, right? You almost expect someone to pop up and go, we are the Knights from Nee. But, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's, they take it incredibly seriously. And, 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 and so we all have to too, because this lie, this, this sort of cod medieval nonsense is at the sort of the core of the most powerful mafia on earth. I mean, seeing as uh, this branch of the mafia are one of the richest and or were one of the richest and most ruthless syndicates in the world. I mean, they've got branches in America to Australia. Did you yeah. ever feel unsafe when writing the book? It's a good question. I mean, uh, so, so as Italian journalists, I mean, hundreds of Italian journalists have been threatened and uh, live with a certain amount of fear. Um, I worked with a, a couple, uh, one guy down in Calabria, he's had, you know, bullets left on his doorstep, that kind of stuff. Um, I, 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 it, was, it was a constant question, but I, I, I could say I only really sort of felt the brush of it once when, um, so, the first woman that I told you about, the woman who walked into the police station, she, she was called Leah Garofolo. She came from this tiny little hill village way up in the mountains, literally the last village at the end of the road. And um, I wanted to go there. 
to take a look around and be able to describe it. She had a sister, Leah, an elder sister who, who is still alive. Um, and I'm, I'm going to a village where I know there's been 30 mafia murders in the last three decades in a village of 400 people. So, I mean, it's completely mm. mafia. The entire thing is mafia. So being careful, me and the translator went to a nearby town, met the mayor, met the chief of police, allowed them to kind of take us on a tour of the local olive farms and the, you know, interesting 12th century churches. And all the while we're stroking our chins going, oh, it's fascinating. And then at the end of this, I say, I just want to go to this little village down the road. You know, I don't really know my way around. Um, is it possible, dear Mr. Chief of Police, that your local cop there can, um, you know, just show me around? And I, I really just want to get in and get out, which is what I want to do. I really didn't want to meet anybody. Um, and the guy goes, yeah, fine, fine. You know, you go ahead and I'll, I'll tell you you're coming. So we drive 20 minutes. We get there. I pull into this village. As I park, this car comes in behind me, cuts me off so I can't go anywhere. <clears throat> this very fat man gets out. It's sort of in a undershirt. Turns out that's the cop. And he announces they want to see us. Oh. Uh, yeah. And we're like, okay. And uh, so we walk in up the village into the, the only sort of central square. There's one cafe in this village. And there's a bunch of really nasty looking guys standing outside the cafe, smoking and drinking and just giving us all daggers, just staring. <laughs> and I don't know really what we're meant to be there for. And then this car pulls up and this rather glamorous sort of woman in her 50s gets out. And that is Leah's sister, who's all dressed up in her shades and announces that she's ready for her interview. And we go, okay. So I, and she goes, and that's where my sister used to live, which is actually the reason why I'm there. I want to be able to describe this little flat that she lived in. So we stand in front of that building and I ask a few questions and she gives very stilted monosyllabic answers. Um, um, you know, did you, did you love your sister? She just sort of says, of course. You know, I'm like, I'm not really feeling that love. Um, and, and uh, you know, so we get through this and um, when we're done, she says, right. She takes out her phone. She takes a picture of me. She takes a picture of my translator. She takes our names, full names, birthdays, email addresses, the works. And then we get into our car and she escorts us kind of to the city limits, to the main highway and sets us on the, on the road to Rome, which is a seven hour drive. <laughs> and we're thinking, okay, that was very weird. What was all that about? And we're sort of debating to ourselves, I think she was putting on a show to everyone that she's not a danger to the Indrangheta, even though there are journalists showing up, probably interested in her sister, whatever. The next week in both local papers, there is a 2000 word feature in the center pages all about the foreign journalist who's been uh, visiting the region with a precise uh, rundown of everywhere I've been, everything I've seen, which 12th century church, which olive field, which piazza, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, in both papers, and there are only two. And, and so that says, you know, we know who you are. We know what you're doing. We are all over it. <laughs> you know, it's a warning, right? Absolutely. Very chilling. Um, 
so these three women, the, 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 the witnesses, they were, they went to court. How did they actually, did they actually bring this branch of the mafia down or is it still operating? Well, you'll, you'll notice the book says they took on the mafia, not take down. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. So they, yeah, so Giuseppina Pesce brought down her family and that was pretty spectacular. 64 members of her family went to jail, state confiscated hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, more than 50 companies, all sorts of real estate, whatever. Um, plus her evidence then fed into a whole bunch of other trials, which are ongoing. Um, Leah Garofolo, the woman whose sister I was just talking about, her evidence is also still used in many, many trials. Uh, and she was really the first to open up and shine a light on the inside of it. Uh, uh, Maria Conchetta Cacciola, who was the unfortunate woman who, who drank a liter of acid, she really didn't give that much important evidence. She didn't, she didn't know that much, she didn't have much to say. Her crime, um, aside from, I mean, her motive, she just wanted to get away from the life. And her crime was not so much giving away secrets, but just plain disloyalty and possibly rumors of maybe having an affair, but that's a death sentence. Um, so- And uh, they stuck a tube down her throat and fed her acid. Who, who knows, but I'm, you know, I did some research into this. To voluntarily drink a liter of acid is <laughs> it's, it's so painful. It's point, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible um you pass out so but yeah no one's ever been quite convicted of her murder um although you know they, they have been convicted of kind of setting her up for it um but i mean in answer to your question so th these three women were all giving evidence or, or turning turning to the state at a time when no one had ever done either of those things and they they got the ball rolling. Since then, there have been, I think, more than a hundred people who've now given evidence. You know, they they were literally among the first, um, and a much broader picture and understanding of this organisation is developing. There's now a maxi trial on right now, um, uh, where I think more than three hundred people are on trial from one particular area. So that's a taking down of a sort of major clan, and as with each trial and each process, uh, there's, there's, as I say, there's greater understanding of, of how the Yandrangata works. And in particular, the latest stuff is how deeply it's penetrated into the legitimate economy, into the state, into all the municipal authorities, into the EU, into the London financial system, the works, you know. So half the guys that are on trial on this maxi trial are accountants and lawyers and local politicians. Wow. Well, you know, it's not surprising that finally Hollywood has taken notice and The Good Mothers is going to be made into a film. So it's tell me about TV the film. Series, has TV it series. been shot yet? No, uh, no, no. So it's, um, look, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't need to tell you, like journalism, it's pretty hard to make a living at journalism these days. And, and, the, and the model that I've sort of worked out to, to, to make journalism work is, is, Weirdly, other people will pay for journalists who aren't who aren't in journalism. Uh, so book publishers will pay, and 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 TV companies will pay for a, a true life story. And I sold the rights to this story 
to a television company before I sold it as a story to a magazine or a book or anything like that. And that was the money that paid for uh, the research that became the book. Um, the, that said, you know, making a TV show takes an average of seven years. It has been seven years since I sold those rights. Yeah. And two weeks ago, Disney, bless them, announced that they wanted to turn the book into a six-part uh, television series. So um, everybody's schedules have been sort of backed up by COVID and the various actors and directors that we want are, um, they've, you know, they've got a long list of stuff that they should have done already. So, but we're hoping to shoot in September um, and September, October. That should mean it coming out um, next year or the year after, I think. Are they going to try and keep it um, as true to the book as possible? And they're not going to try and Hollywoodize the, the, the lead players and make the mafia really, into... No, I've been really impressed. I mean, first of all, the, the screenwriter, Stephen Bushard, his... I mean, whisper it quietly, he may have done a better job at telling this true story than I did. <laughs> His, uh, the skills that this guy has got of, of telling a story while scrupulously sticking to the facts, uh, you know, as they're relayed in my book, but he's just made a few sort of different narrative transitions. And I mean, I've, his scripts are breathtaking actually, and and, 100% accurate, you know, and my book is based in very large part on court transcripts. Um, it, you know, one of the huge advantages of the Italian justice system is that they are the world leaders in tapping phones and surveillance. So you have conversations between two mafia bosses in an orangery. You know, you've got the actual conversation. You don't have to imagine it. You don't have to have it secondhand. You know, such and such reported that such and such had said this. The cops are listening in, uh, and and because they might the uh, the orchard. <laughs> so um, it's uh, yeah, and and Stephen has stuck to to all of that. What is um, really, I mean, really impressive is that Disney then turned to us and said. Yes, but we think to be really authentic, this needs to be made in Italian with Italian actors and with an Italian crew and shot in Calabria. And we went, great. You know, Fancy. I'm slightly disappointed that Julia Roberts is not going to be in it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but on, you know, in terms of authenticity, um, you know, how amazing. And, and they're going to go back to the original transcripts that I was talking about that I was working off to make sure that they've got all of that, you know, word perfect. Um, so yeah, in answer to, to your question, um, the, the lengths that they're going to to tell the truth and be authentic are pretty unprecedented. And I think that's become a kind of watchword in TV these days. Absolutely. People yeah. want the authenticity in these kind of programs now. People aren't afraid of languages anymore and, um, and authenticity and the more real it can be is, is, a, is a major point of how compelling it can be. So COVID aside, you hope to, you hope that it'll get, come out in 2022? Yeah, that would be the earliest. It might be the year after that. I mean, that's, yeah, as they say, way above my pay grade. You know, that's yeah. Disney. Uh, but Disney's got this new channel, streaming channel, 
star and it's going to be one of the lead shows on that fantastic um, alex now um the book and in, in fact all your books are available on amazon and in all good bookstores the good are. mothers was a sensational read and i can't wait to see that film yeah um, no normally i mean i i'm i'm really excited about it i'm you know, yeah. I'm a bit of a fanboy. I want to go on set. I want to meet the actors and all that, you know. <laughs> um, and, and so they're going to film it in Calabria. You know, come on. Are they not going to sort of come up with roadblocks and, you know, well, goats on the goats going across the set? And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the mafia has always had a kind of slightly weird relationship with Hollywood. Yeah. And their depiction. So you'll find. Like on mobile phones in Calabria or Sicily, people are passing around little sort of video clips, splicing real life mafia murders with clips from The Godfather and stuff like that. You know, they, they use their sort of Hollywood legend to burnish their own legend. And, the, you know, this won't be the first thing about the Andrangheta that's shot in Calabria. I mean, I go out of my way in my book to puncture the mafia myth and, and, and describe these guys as they are, which is sort of thuggish, misogynist, murderous criminals. <laughs> you know, it's there's nothing complimentary about them at all. I, um, you know, that, that whole myth about honor and sacrifice and something sort of noble and pure and that it's bullshit. And I say so. So mm. I don't, I can't imagine that they would like the book, but, you know, we'll see, right? But yes, the intention is to film in Calabria. Well, it's wonderful news. Um, before we go, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Uh, another organized crime story, uh, which I hope is gonna be a book, but right now is a story coming out in Outside Magazine in a few days, which has taken me two, two and a half years, but this is about um, Russian organized crime, the Russian mafia state and their links to the Olympics and a kind of athlete's revolution against all the corruption and scandal that you've seen in the Olympics. They're trying to take their sport back, swimmers in particular, uh, but they get a lot more than they bargained for because they hadn't really realized that the Russian mob was inside the Olympics. Jesus, you're not going to be a very popular person after that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, these stories just come to you right I mean I you know I guess my ears are oaring, always on but I, I picked that one up at the school gate picking up my middle daughter you know <laughs> the <laughs> woman said we happened to be in sports PR and, and I asked her what she was doing and she just started telling me this story and I'm like oh my god <laughs> brilliant well well good luck with that unfortunately we're out of time Alex Perry thank you for joining me on conversations with Pete Wood Oh, thanks for having me, Pete. Great catch-up. Bye. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. 
goodbye.